peculiar really how my life pans out because I'm just a normal girl from normal family you know and that's it. Hello and welcome to Pin Drop at Soho House. I'm your host Simon Oldfield. Joining me tonight for an evening of riotous anecdotes is Lucian Freud's muse Sue Tilly. Who would have dreamt that all these things that have happened to me have happened to me with not an iota of ambition or anything they just just happen they come my way. I must have been blessed somewhere in the world, I don't know where. Hello everyone and welcome to Pin Drop at Sarah House. I'm Simon Oldfield and it's a great pleasure to be here this evening to introduce the incredible, the fabulous, the don't legendary... <laughs> Sue Tilly. I've known Sue for a number of years, and for many people around the world, she's known because she was immortalised by Lucian Freud in some of his most iconic paintings. To some, she is the best friend and biographer of Lucian... Sorry, not Lucian Freud, Me. Lee Bowery. Oh, yeah, I was his best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and to others, she's like, probably Britain's most famous benefit supervisor, I'd say. <laughs> and more recently, a, an artist in her own right. Tonight, we're going to be taking on a bit of a journey. I'm going to be in conversation with Sue. But first of all, we're going to have a, a, an extract that Sue's going to read from her biography of the legendary Lee Bowery. So please welcome Sue Tilly. Thanks. Ta. Do you think you could just set the scene a little bit for everyone here before you read your extract? So I'm just here to talk about my life, my friends, my bizarre life. And I think in the past, my life was more about the people I knew and the things that I did. Because I've done those things, I've kind of done more stuff myself. So it's becoming more about me. Me, me, me. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'll read now, but it's not much because honestly, I've got a horrible voice and me reading is not nice. <laughs> okay. I can hardly see either. <laughs> I first met Lee in the nightclubs of London in 1982. We became best friends, which some people thought was rather strange as I was an ordinary girl and he was an extraordinary kind of man. But we laughed at the same things, and he knew I could understand what he was doing and could keep up with his quick wit and intelligence. I kept him in touch with everyday reality, and he gave me plenty of excitement to my life. Lee always wanted to be famous, and we spent many happy hours discussing what would happen when he was. There was no doubt in either of our minds that he would be. We just didn't know in what field he would make the big break. He tried fashion, art, dance, acting, television presenting and music, and was successful in varying degrees in all of them. No one who saw him performing will ever forget the experience. Lee liked to keep his friends separate, so most of them only knew one facet of Lee's life, but he used to tell me everything that was going on, and gradually I came to know all the people in his life and became involved, if only in a small way, with most of his projects. This is a sad bit now, so I've got a hanky ready, you know, it'd be nice. This is called the 30th of November, 1988. Lee called me at work to say he had to come round because he had... I mean, in those days it was bizarre, because you weren't really meant to use the phone at work. And mobile phones weren't invented. Mm. And so I'd always been told off for being on the phone. And people come and listen to who you were talking to. And then sometimes they get the phone bill and go through it with the tone and see, you've done all these numbers, what's the matter with you? So anyway, he rang me at work on my work phone. I told him that I was going to Julian Jeffrey, so it, could it wait? He said it couldn't. So I knew that it had to be something serious because he didn't want me to 
He didn't visit me that often. My mind kept wandering, thinking what it could be. I came up with loads of different ideas. He was in love, he had been caught cottaging, he was being sent back to Australia, but deep down I knew what it was. Sadly, I was right. He had just received a letter from the Clap Clinic asking how he was coping with his HIV positive status. He had been tested a couple of years earlier, but decided not to go back for the results because he preferred to live in ignorance. So he went back to the clinic to check that it was true, and it was. First of all, I thought it might be one of his terrible lies because he was always telling terrible lies. But he knew I'd think that, so he brought the letter to show me. In actual fact, he did tell his friend Nicola, and she was so upset, sobbing and wailing, he told her it was a lie. And because he was such a liar, she believed him. <laughs> so that was lucky. We had a good old cry. It reminded me of the night he had come round after Trojan had died, when we both had a sob together. His main concern was that he would never have sex again. And he was laughing through his tears, going, how on earth am I going to cope? How are the cottages of London going to manage without my constant <laughs> presence? <laughs> he made me promise not to tell anyone else because he could not bear the thought of do-gooders being nice to him all the time. I asked if he wanted to stay the night, but he said that he would be fine. I gave him a big kiss and he left knowing that nothing would ever be the same again. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Because you wrote it, I understand, after it was one thing led to another. It was an initial yeah. invitation that led to something else. Because when Lee died, this person called Angus Cook, who quite a lot in life really is to do with Angus Cook, although I haven't seen him for years, he met someone at Observe and they said, oh, do you want to write an obituary? And he went, oh, no, I'll sue, you know. She knew you were the best. So the Observer, the Guardian or whatever rang me up and I thought, well, I can't write that. That's ridiculous. I've never written anything in my life. I can't do that. Then I thought, no, what would Lee do? He'd say, Susan, you go for it. You do it. So I did. And then um, they rang up and they were really pleased with it. They went, oh, no, you've done a really good job. We're thrilled, you know, and took me out for lunch. I went, oh. And anyway, a few months after that, some guy at Hodgman Stoughton wanted to write a book about Lee. So they rang me up and went, do you want to write a book? And I went, oh, all right then. <laughs> but I thought, I thought, you know, like people who spend all their lives sitting, pretending in garretics, writing books, and nothing ever happens. I thought, oh, oh, well, I might as well do it. And they gave me three months, and I was at work at the same time. So I took a couple of weeks off. But it was really lovely, because I was going to see all these friends and finding out all stuff I couldn't remember and find out. And loads of things I found out that they had told me were complete lies. <laughs> so I wrote that. And luckily, the office was only near where he lived. So at the end, when it's, you know, getting to near the end and all the edits and that, I kept just... You know, as I said, this was day before the days. Of, I don't think even email invented then. I had to keep running down to the office with the paperwork and then coming back with it and everything. So it was only on Euston Road. So that happens. Yeah. And so you met Lee in the early 80s, is that right? Yeah, at Cha-Cha's around the back of heaven. How did you meet? So I had a party and my flatmate knew the boy from Le Monge. Right. Not the singer, the other one. <laughs> and he said, you've got to come to um, heaven, you'd like it. It's on Tuesday, I think, was it a Tuesday night? And it was like the modern night, run by Scarlet. So we went down and they met Lee there. And you know you just meet someone, you just like them straight away. We just got on. What would be some of the your favourite looks of his, I suppose? Because you did become, they evolved and they became more and more exaggerated, I suppose, yeah. didn't they? A lot of it was when he started working for Lucium, because yeah. he was naked all the time. Mm -hmm. He spent a lot of time studying his own body, and so his looks became more body distorted and things like that, because that's what he thought about, because he could see himself naked all day long. So, his, so the more outrageous looks of his became more exaggerated as a result yeah, of that being process naked, with yeah. Lucium. You met Lucian or introduced to Lucian through Lee, yeah. is that right? Because Lee was very manipulative of my life. Oh, really? But, you know, I'm glad he was because it worked out fantastically for me. 
but he wanted me to do something, you know, he didn't really like the fact I worked in the job centre, they gave some sort of sick entertainment value. <laughs> <laughs> and so he thought, well, let's... Because um, he started working for Lucian, because this person, Angus Cook, who I mentioned yeah. before, went to university with one of Lucian's daughters, so he modelled for him. Then he gave him Lee's name, you know, told him about Lee, so he started him Lee. And then Lee told him about me. Mm -hmm. Because they were both such power freaks, he had to make Lucian think he'd thought of painting me rather than Lee telling him to paint me. <laughs> so I'd like to see that conversation. Yeah. yeah. So you just mentioned how Lee changed after his experience or while working with Lucian. Yeah. How did it, did it change you in any way, do you think? Not really. It just made me more boring, <laughs> so I couldn't really go out so much. Oh, really? Because I was, I was at work five days a week, yeah. and then I worked there Saturdays and Sundays, uh -huh. and then I had to get up about half past six to go. And then he used to, um, every day I had off work, go, come and work for me, come and work for me. So in two years, I had about three actual days where I didn't actually go to his house. Wow. And you so, enjoyed the process, though? Oh, yeah, but I got very well up on current affairs. Because he had about five newspapers a day. Right. So in my breaks, I just used to sit and read all the papers and the Sunday magazines and the supplements and listen to his stories. <laughs> and I expect he had good stories. Fantastic stories. Mm. I wish really I'd paid more attention now and written it down and made a little diary, but of course I didn't. Can you remember most of them, though? Some of them? Remember he told me he shook um, Judy Garland's hand. It was a very limp handshake. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then he went in somewhere with Cecil Beaton's car with Greta Garbo and things like this. But whether, wow. I don't know if he made, you know, if they were true. <laughs> then he'd tell you terrible stories about girls he'd got off with and that, <laughs> and about how he'd treat them so badly, like I'd be impressed. I go, you did what? You kicked them down the stairs. Oh. Went, yes, of course, why shouldn't I? I'm just going, what? <laughs> Crikey. Yeah. I don't think he hurt them. He didn't try and kick you down the stairs, I did he? I wouldn't dare. <laughs> but I wasn't in love with him, so it was very easy, you see. Yeah, Because yeah. I didn't have the... Because the trouble is, most of the girls who met him fell in love with him. Yes. But he so wasn't my cup of tea, and I wasn't his cup of tea. Wore too much makeup, and I wasn't sort of... A bit waspy, the girls he liked. <laughs> and you had tattoos as well, which I hear was a bit of an issue. Well, not only had... Because I did one, I did one painting, and then I got brown. Yeah. So I'd been on holiday, so I couldn't work for a year while that faded. And then, um, yeah, so I got a tattoo at the time being. He really didn't like it. So what he did was mix up the paint to paint my flesh before he started, then paint it over the tattoo, so he couldn't see it. It's kind of brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. He, like as an artist, he was always sort of, like presenting. Yeah. He did use life. it in one etching. Okay. But even if you had like one little bit of mascara left on for the night before he'd see and go bathroom with you and you had to go and wipe check every single detail was off wow. and even once you weren't allowed to dye your hair but once I used this you know like a shampoo hint of a tint by mistake or something what have you done to your hair you could, like <laughs> tell his observation skills were so amazing you could tell and when you did go back and there were some slight changes did he then change the painting or would it be just sort of incorporated in what I've been would... changing the painting all the time it was just forever changing so right. just like you know some of the pictures look a bit spotty you paint one spot, he loves spots, so you paint one spot and that go, and you get one other, you paint that in as well. So you end up looking really spotty, that you weren't really, you only probably had one. You wouldn't want to see me now because I'm covered in mosquito bites. So would have you painted over those, do you think? Or no, well, they've gone in, they've been in they'd like gone a shot. In. There's nothing you love more than stretch marks. Oh, really? He once wrote to Marjorie Proops, there was, you know, she'd be in olden days, she was a, Agony aunt, there was a letter someone complaining about stretch marks. So he wrote back to the paper and went, Madam, there's nothing more endearing than stretch marks to me. But I don't know if it was published. And there were quite a few paintings, weren't there? And some of them obviously, you know, very famous. Others. Well, four uh, of me. Four of you. Four. Yeah. 
And uh, one I loathe, a... so hopefully that's never sold. I was about to ask you, what's your favourite and which oh, the one your that, least favourite? The, the two ones, the, the ones that sold for a lot are my favourites. Right. And there's one, the first one I did, where I look like a big fat frog lying on the floor. I can't abide. Is that the one with the dog on the... Yeah. yeah. You're not... Oh, I hate that picture. <laughs> look at my face. <laughs> <laughs> and the dog on the bed is kind of interesting as well, isn't oh, it? Oh, Pluto, kind of... yeah. yeah. Well, that was meant to be Lee. Oh, really? On the bed. Yeah. But then he got a job doing a play in Scotland. Right. And so he couldn't really do it. Okay. So he put a dog instead. <laughs> but that led to... A fair a stand-in. That led to a terrible story because... Then there was an exhibition at the Tate Gallery or something, and I told the story how Lee had turned his dog, and for a joke, I went, oh, it was better for him, because he didn't have to pay him, but, like, it was only as a joke. <laughs> and this was after he finished working with me. Never spoke to me again. I was sent to Coventry. Oh, God. For saying that he... But it was meant... Oh, he just speaks to me once, actually. I met him years later. Right. And how long did that relationship work last with you and Lucian? Well, each painting took nine months. I did one for nine months. Yeah. Then I had a break of a year when my fan faded. Tan faded. <laughs> my fan faded. Fan faded. Yeah, yeah that sounds tan good faded. Too. And then I did three more, which were nine months each, so about four years altogether. Right. And then afterwards, you know, it's quite friendly to me and ring me up every now and then. Then after the terrible debacle of the dog for not being paid, oh, yeah. he didn't ever really speak to me again. Mm. <laughs> Until I bumped into him once at a party and he managed to say a few. Like, you know, to be honest, when the painting sold for all that money, I thought, be quite nice if he rang me to say thanks or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Nothing. Nothing? No. No? Not a word of not it. Not even a postcard? No, nothing. Oh. But, you know, that's, the way, that's works, the way it goes. That's the way it works. Yes. Yeah. But he did manage to speak to me briefly. And you had some work by Lucian as well. Do you still have anything? No, I sold it. Sold it. All gone. Easy come, easy go, I say with my name. <laughs> you know, gave me some etchings and then, you know, we get a bit hard up. She only work in the job centre and don't own a lot. <laughs> So I sold them to keep me going. So I always lived above my means. Right. And he paid you, what, £20 a 20 day pounds. or something, wasn't it? 20 pounds and then a the £100 lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Did he take you for good lunches? Yeah, lovely. And he was always with interesting people as well, as well, well wasn't no, he? Some, no, usually it was just us. Okay. But be, sometimes it was... No, really, generally it was just us. Right. Sometimes, like, gambling people, but I didn't have much interest in them. But he'd be like this at the restaurant. Yeah, I'm nosy and I can... Try and be subtle when looking at people, just like this. Be like they're standing up, just staring at people like this to oh, see funny. what you could see. Wow. And he didn't like to be recognised, but funny enough, he always went out covered in paint. <laughs> <laughs> and he used to have that same table at the Walsey, didn't he? Yeah, but the Walsey to... wasn't invented when I worked oh, for him, unfortunately. What a shame. See, because yeah, there are people who used to sort of go at the same time so they knew that's when Lucy yeah. was going to be dining in the inner circle. And they've named an ice cream after him now. Have they really? Yeah. And then oh. a day after he died, there's a table, just his table with a candle on there. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Because it every Monday, wasn't it, they used to go, I think. I there, think so, I think yeah. Every Monday at eight o'clock or something like that. <laughs> Moving on to your work, you know, it's which is... But well, a fairly recent thing. You were not. You trained to be an art teacher. Is that I did. Right. I didn't really. Anyway. After that, then I didn't get a job. So I thought I just went signed on. And that's how I got rolled into the world of the job centre. Yeah. <laughs> so no. And then you. But then only really last few years, two three years, you yeah. started making your own work. Because I was asked to do some work for the um, kids company charity because my friend worked there, and they wanted to get a nude model as well as me. So I don't. Yeah, I don't do nude anymore. And so this artist turned up with that boy, that naked boy there, and we became friends. And he's like really encouraged me to do art and everything because he done an MA at Goldsmiths. And he's like, his, you know, people whose life is just art. Everything they do is art. And so he made me draw. 
and things like that. And then another friend saw them and said, would I do some illustrations for his console, play, whatever he's putting on? And he's really pushy, this person, but in an entertaining way. So he phoned up the Guardian or the Observer and said, oh, this girl, she's doing my pictures for me. So they said, oh, we're right, little piece. Turned out to be half a page. And then someone saw that and just offered me an exhibition, just like that. Another jammy thing that's happened in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever been tempted to performance art? I mean, Lee was, like, no, notorious with that first performance that he gave. That... Well, it's actually, me and Julia have done performance art. Have you? Well, sort of. We were a band called The Curse. And then we used to sometimes perform at nightclubs doing the Indian theme. It wasn't very well rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. <laughs> well, we just ended up... There was an Indian show and I'd seen this film, Mother India, where they throw all those coloured powders about. Right. So we just sort of threw them around the sauna. Around the sauna? <laughs> yeah, because we had this party in saunas in the old days. In the olden days, they had parties in saunas. Which ones? Any the big was, No, Tiger Sauna in Kentish Town. Oh, right. Yeah. And you and that must have been a bit get a bit clammy with the powder and yeah, the it was, steam, Yeah, it right? was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had our band, The Curse. And I you know, I'd prefer to call that a performance art. Okay. So we're only playing cardboard guitars. Can we see that anyway? Is that is that is no. that been recorded? I think Jeffrey might have it somewhere, but that's the only place. Okay. Yeah. We're ahead of our time. <laughs> <laughs> and did you participate in that? performance that Grace and Perry was in, I think, as well, the very early Lee performance. Wasn't there, like, with body fluids were involved? Oh, yeah, no, I just watched that one oh, at really? the old church in Euston. And how did that go? What well, was Lee, oh, it was this fun... The neonatrists, Grace and Perry, were on this funny club in the basement of a church near Euston Station. It was on the bottom of my estate where I live, actually very near my publishers. And... Um, <laughs> Small world. Oh, yeah, and they just... It's like just drinking his own piss and things like that. People were horrified. Lee or Grayson? No, Grayson wasn't. No, it was Lee and Trojan. Oh, Lee and Trojan. People were okay. horrified. And I think they might have set something on fire by mistake. I can't really remember. <laughs> but I know it was a drama. Wow. Do you think you could get away with that now? Health and safety. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think I've exhausted all my questions, so I'm going to invite everyone to give Sue a round of applause. They might not want to. I think they do. <laughs> Come on. Thanks. Thanks. This programme is brought to you by Sarah House and Radio Wolfgang, sponsored by Audible, and presented by me, Simon Oldfield, and featured Sue Tilly. Thank you.